You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. That's actually pretty enthusiastic. Our team was pretty tired, so uh, you're all waking us up. We're in our last uh, week of our series, Redeem the Dream, and I want to start out a little bit differently today. I need three volunteers to help me tell a story here. Three volunteers. Bobby, I love it, which is perfect because one of our characters' names is Bob, so you can be Bob. I need two more. And then one more person. Jessica, yes, I love it. Or Chris, anybody. You can be Joe. Chris, you can be the boss, all right? So here's how this is going to work. We're going to start with Chris in the middle here, and then you guys, if you want to go over to that side, and I'm going to narrate this story for us, okay? Uh, So there was once a boss, everybody say hi, boss, who had some employees who had borrowed some money from him. And so he decided to settle accounts with each of them, and as he began the process, it came to his attention that one of his employees named Bob... Say hi, Bob. Bob owed his boss $1 billion. $1 billion. I don't know what kind of boss would lend his employee $1 billion. So the boss called Bob in front of him and said, pay me what you owe me. Say, pay me what you, what you owe me. <laughs> when Bob was unable to pay his debt, the boss ordered that Bob and his whole family be taken to court to be sued for every penny they were worth. Bob threw himself face down at his boss's feet, <laughs> go for it, begging for mercy. He said, please be patient with me. Please be patient with me. <laughs> Give me more time. Give me more time. And I will repay everything. I will repay everything. Upon hearing his pleas, the boss had compassion on Bob and released him and forgave his $1 billion debt. No sooner had Bob left when he met one of his coworkers named Joe. So everybody say hi, Joe. Joe owed Bob $100. Bob seized Joe by the throat. Do it gently, Bob. Gently seize him by the throat. Gently. And said, you better pay me right now. Every dime you owe me. Joe threw himself down at Bob's feet and begged. Please be patient with me. If you just give me more time, I'll repay all that is owed. But Bob, who had just had his massive debt forgiven, stubbornly refused to forgive the $100 that was owed to him. Bob took Joe to court and demanded he repay the debt in full. And when Bob's peers saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to their boss and told him the whole story. And the boss said, what about Bob? Just kidding. It's a joke for the older generation here. He called Bob to him and said, you scoundrel. 
<laughs> is this the way you respond to my mercy? And I'll just read the rest here. Because you begged me, I forgave your debt that you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to Joe over $100 that I showed you over $1 billion? He threw Bob in prison for the rest of his days. <laughs> Why is it that forgiveness feels so scandalous to us? Why does forgiveness feel so scandalous? I would argue that for most of us, we operate in a Bob and a Joe mode when it comes to forgiveness. That when I am Bob and I've been wronged by Joe, that's all I see. I forget sometimes that there is a boss involved who forgave me a much larger debt. And so I operate in this Bob and Joe mentality. And the truth is, every single time that we're wronged, whether it's a sin against us, a mistake against us, it creates this debt that needs to be repaid. And, and somebody has to pay it, right? Like if, if the boss forgives Bob's debt, who takes on that debt themselves? The boss does. If Bob forgives Joe's debt, who's taken on the debt there? Bob is. Every single time that we are wronged or we wrong someone, it creates a debt to be repaid. Can we give it up for our volunteers here? This morning. Thank you, guys. Hopefully that was fun. We'll try that again sometime here. Forgiveness feels scandalous because it goes against everything that is in us. That when I wrong someone else and I create a debt that needs to be repaid, forgiveness says I actually will take your debt on myself. For example, I was borrowing someone's car this summer here from our church, and I got into a minor fender bender with said car. And I went to the person upon returning their car, and I said, I'm so sorry, I will pay whatever it takes to repair the scratch and the dent that's in your bumper. I will, I will take care of it. And the, the text I got back said, Bob, don't have, Brad, don't have any concern about the bumper. Vehicles to me are a tool. If you use a tool, it will get some scratches. Love you. The moral of the story there is don't let your pastor borrow your car. <laughs> The second moral of the story, though, is that by not making me pay for the bumper in one way or another, my friend absorbed a cost that was mine to pay. And it doesn't matter what situation you're talking about, whether it's a bank forgiving a loan, like that had ever happened, uh, the bank absorbs the cost, or a criminal being forgiven of, of their crime, society absorbs the cost. Someone always absorbs the cost of forgiveness. And yet we live in a culture that is obsessed with atonement, right? You pay for the wrongs that you did and often allergic to forgiveness. And if you didn't know, this Bob Joe Boss story is actually a story that Jesus told. We just modernized it a little bit, but it's a famous story Jesus told. And Jesus' point about forgiveness repeatedly came down to essentially this statement. That when I choose not to forgive, when I am Bob... I am choosing to forget the cost of the cross. That when I choose in my relationships with other people not to practice forgiveness, not to exercise forgiveness, I am choosing to forget how much forgiveness actually costs, how much of a debt was paid for me on the cross. Now, some of us, when we, when we see this statement, there's a thousand whatabouts that come to our mind, right? What about accountability? 
What about justice? What about consequences? What about repeat offenders or people who aren't sorry or abusers? What does forgiveness mean for those situations? And we're going to talk about all of those today. But I want you, even as we turn to Joseph in the last part, the last chapter of his story, to marinate on this statement for just a moment. When I choose not to forgive, I am choosing to forget the cost of the cross. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 45 today. And today we're looking at the final chapter of Joseph's story, and I'm going to give you a 20-second recap of where we're at. We've been tracking through this story the whole month of January. Uh, We're in February now. January was a nice year, wasn't it? (laughs) It's over. Sun is in sight. We're almost done with winter. So 12 more weeks. Um, Squirrel, I'm a little ADD today. I'm sorry. Today. (laughs) Uh, Genesis chapter 45, brief recap of, of where we're at. Uh, So at this point in the story, Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. He's been put in charge of all of Egypt during the season of famine. And the brothers who sold him into slavery are now back. They're encountering him for a third time, asking him for help. And they stand in front of him once again, utterly helpless, and not knowing this is their brother, right? So he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And they stand before him. And in this moment, as they are asking for help, Joseph can utterly ruin them. All of the power is in Joseph's hands in this moment. And this is the moment where he reveals to them who he is, and it is a striking picture of forgiveness. Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. To put it lightly, can you picture the jaws on the floor in this moment, right? The eyes and how wide they were. They were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these past two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. So like we said, this is the third time Joseph saw his brothers. And as you read the story, the first couple times, he speaks harshly to them. We kind of joked last week that he was pranking them in some ways. But if you really dig deeper into the text, and we don't have time to get into all of the nuances of the story, what Joseph is doing by confronting his brothers in these different ways, is he is showing them their sin. He is showing them a picture of what they've done to him. He is making them come face to face with their wrongdoing. And this is the first step to forgiveness. Like if you're struggling with with forgiveness towards someone, the first step is always telling the truth about the wrong that was done. 
It's always being honest, whether that's you committed the wrong and, and there's an aspect of confession there, or someone committed a wrong against you. It is always begins by telling the truth, and that is what Joseph is doing here. When he reveals himself to his brothers, he says to them, you sold me into Egypt. This is what you did. And over and over, in test after test that Joseph puts his brothers through, it's not just him being mean to them or being harsh towards them. It's him facing them with the truth of the things that they did to hurt him, the sins that they committed against him. But in the mix of all of those tests, what you can see is Joseph's heart is moving through the process of forgiveness. Step by step, year by year. How do we know? Because Joseph keeps weeping over his brothers. In fact, eight different times in the text throughout these chapters, it says Joseph wept. He wept over their sin. He wept over their wrongdoing. He wept over the status of their family. Joseph is a very weepy guy. I'm not saying weeping is necessary to forgive someone. But this is an indication of Joseph's heart that he is moving, that he is both truthful and redemptive in his approach to forgiving his brothers. Telling the truth about the offense is always the first step to forgiveness. Now, I want to make a distinction here, and this is a really important distinction, because there are, I imagine there are two groups of people in this room that have processed through different types of forgiveness. There are two kind of primary ways that we are called to forgive. One is forgiveness with reconciliation, right? Continuing the relationship, participating in relationship with that person. The other is forgiveness when reconciliation is not possible or it's harmful, right? These are two very different types of situations, and we're going to speak to both of them this morning, but I want it to be really clear up front. These are different types of situations, but in both cases, we are called towards forgiveness, so let's begin with when reconciliation is possible, when the goal is to reconcile a relationship. So it always begins with getting honest. Getting honest with God about the hurt that has been caused. Getting honest with the offender. I think about my closest relationships. When forgiveness and healing happen in a relationship, it always begins with getting honest. It doesn't begin with sugarcoating or brushing under the rug or deflecting. It begins with, hey, this is what I did. I'm sorry, or hey, this is what you did, and this is how it made me feel, and I know it maybe wasn't your intention, but it hurt, and this is how. It always starts with getting honest. Um, and if you're human, you'll find yourself in both positions, having to confront evil against you and being confronted about your evil against other people. Uh, tomorrow, our next podcast episode drops. We, we have a podcast here that's called My New Life Story, where we share the stories of people in our church. And my friend Darren is sharing his story tomorrow. And I'm just going to give you a real quick preview of one of my favorite parts of our conversation. There was this moment where we were talking about what it means to be dads and what happens when we actually make mistakes with our kids and we wrong our kids. And he shared this beautiful story of him and his son getting into a fight, him losing patience with his son, and his son running to his bedroom. And when Darren went to go check on his son, his son had his Bible open. And Darren said, hey, man, what, what, are, you, what are you looking for? What are you reading? And his son just looked up at him, and he said, Dad, I'm just looking for verses about what to do when you're sad. 
And I love that story because, first of all, if you're a parent, you've been in a situation like that. I've been in a hundred of them. But what I love about that is even from a child's perspective, that is a child getting honest with their parents about the offense against them. And when a parent has an opportunity to say, hey, I'm sorry, buddy. I sinned. I made a mistake. I messed up. There is something beautiful that is taught about the heart of God when we're invited into those moments with our kids. And this isn't just true for parenting. This is true in our marriages. It is true in our works, work lives. It's true in the church. That when we get honest, we actually can change the dynamic of individuals and marriages and families and churches. Whole countries have done truth and reconciliation seminars and, and movements like Rwanda and South Africa that have healed nations by telling the truth about wrongs that have been done. This is such a beautiful picture of what we're called to be. Imagine if we learn to do this in the church with each other. Instead of just leaving when someone rubs us the wrong way or we get mad at something, we actually sit down at the table and do the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation towards each other. Jesus didn't say if this would happen. He said when this would happen. Right? And, and whose responsibility is it to initiate this process? Always yours. Always yours. Back in Matthew 5, when Jesus talked about forgiveness, this is what he said. He said, if your brother has something against you, go to him. Right? If you've done wrong against your brother, you initiate the process first. You go to him first. But then in Matthew 18, he says this. If you have something against your brother, what? Go to him. Right? So even when the situation's reversed, no matter if you're in the wrong or you've been wrong, the calling of Jesus is that if we are to be people of forgiveness and reconciliation, that we always take the first step. And what's beautiful about how Jesus teaches about this is that this isn't just a Bob and a Joe situation. Right? It's not just two people coming to the table of forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus promises us that when we're honest and we come to this table and we go first to forgive, he promises that there's always a third chair at the table, that he is right there with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. That's not a verse about gathering in church for worship. That's a verse about coming to the hard table of forgiveness and reconciliation. He promises that he's there with us. And this is what's so cool about Joseph's story, is that Joseph understood with his brothers that there was a third chair at the table, that it wasn't just him and them, but that actually God was doing a redemptive work through the forgiveness process, and God and his Holy Spirit were working in that situation and moving in that situation. And when you understand that there is a third chair at the table, it changes how you forgive people. Because when I choose not to forgive, I am choosing to forget how much the cost of the cross actually is. And so what do we do about the second situation? What do we do about situations where reconciliation is not possible or if it's even harmful? Because right? I know there's a lot of these stories in our church as well. Where the necessary thing to do is to actually cut off the relationship. 
Well, I would argue that it still begins with telling the truth. Some of us, we've been in relationships for years that have been abusive, neglectful, extremely harmful, and we've never told the truth to ourselves about what's happening, and we've never brought that truth to God. It begins with telling the truth. For some of us, telling the truth in those situations and setting the boundaries so that you are safe and you are no longer able to get hurt. But it still begins with telling the truth. For others of us, it's, it's bringing the truth not just to God, but to a small group of people who can help us walk through that. We see this dynamic at play all the time in our small groups. I refer people to local Christian counselors all the time to walk through this process. And yet when some of us even hear that, it is painful to think about. It is heart-wrenching to think about. But this is the place, friends, where healing can happen. Should there be accountability and justice for wrongdoing against us? Absolutely. However, when we pursue justice and accountability without allowing God to stir forgiveness in our hearts, it's just revenge for our sake. True forgiveness happens when we're actually willing to arrive to a place where we say, I want redemption for that person and their story, even if I'm not playing an active part in that. Forgiveness can happen from a distance. It doesn't have to happen with reconciliation side by side. And there are so many people in our church who have walked through that process. And I've also witnessed so many people in our church who are crushed by the burden of sin because they haven't walked through that process. When I choose to forgive, I am choosing to remember the cost of the cross. You forgive before you feel like it. You choose not to weaponize your wounds. Forgiveness always begins with honesty. I love how Pastor Tim Keller says it. He says this, Forgiveness begins where whitewashing, nothing really happened, or blame shifting, it wasn't really my fault, or self-pity, I'm sorry because of what it cost me, or self-flagellation, I will feel so terrible, no one will ever criticize me, and that's where forgiveness begins. Forgiveness begins where honesty begins. So a couple helpful questions to process through. What is the dominant emotion I feel right now towards the situation or the person that has wronged me or that I've wronged? Is it anger? Is it indifference? Is it sadness? Another question is, how is this offense affecting other areas of my life and other relationships? Am I carrying unforgiveness into a new marriage, a new job, a new situation where it is just I'm weaponizing my wounds? Another one to think through. What am I gaining from not forgiving? What am I gaining from not forgiving this person? And last one here, what will I lose if I do choose to forgive them? Joseph is able to stand face to face with his accusers and say, you intended evil against me. He calls their sin what it is. He's honest about it before God and before them. And so what he does with this is it's in this place of naming it where forgiveness happens. And it is okay that it is a process. Sometimes we think about forgiveness as needing to be like this kind of really fast thing in our lives. But for Joseph, this was a years-long process of moving towards forgiveness, of walking through this process. But what you can see in his heart is that it's constantly moving towards that direction. It's outrageously full of mercy. 
So what he does after this interaction with his brothers is he takes them under his wing, he takes his father under his wing, and he cares for them. For years he takes care of them. And there's this beautiful reconciliation that happens. But what I love about the Bible is it is real life stories of real messy families. And even in this story, it's not just like, hey, he forgave them and like it's done and everything's happy and they lived happily ever after. The Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is real stories of real people. And even in this family situation, once their father dies, these brothers get all paranoid about whether or not Joseph is going to now come seek vengeance against them. Right? Some of us know how much the death of a patriarch or a mother of a family can change the dynamics that are at play in that family. This is what happens with Joseph and his brothers at the very end of the story. And this is the moment where Joseph explicitly chooses forgiveness. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, which by the way is probably not true. It's probably them lying to Joseph. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He's quite a weepy guy, okay? He weeps a lot here, which is a good thing. That's not bad. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And this is the famous verse. As for you, you meant evil against me, right? He calls it what it is. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive, so they are today. So you do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. Wow. This is not the way of the world. This is the way of the cross. See, the way of the world says your life for mine. The way of the cross says my life for yours. See, there's a pattern to redeemers in the Bible. A pattern that you see play out over and over again, whether it's big redeemers like Joseph or little slave girl stories or the story of Jesus himself. The pattern of redeemers is almost always the same that the Redeemer is sent to a group of people and that people commits grave wrong against them, against that person. Creates a need for forgiveness to happen. And what God consistently does through Redeemer stories in the Bible is he uses that very wrong to bring redemption and life out of the situation. How does he do this? Through the power of forgiveness. We said the first week of this series that God's dream is to redeem your story for his glory. The very people that he uses as agents of redemption in this world are the people who are willing to remember the cost of the cross and forgive and forgive and forgive. If God's dream is to redeem your story for his glory, then it's in forgiving that we become God's very instruments of redemption. See, if the first step of forgiveness, if the first step in this process is to tell the truth, to, to be honest, the second step is always to remember how much redemption costs. 
to remember that redemption is never free and that it costs God more than anything it will ever cost any of us. A spirit of forgiveness begins to stir in me as I remember the cross, as I remember the cost of my own redemption and what it cost God on the cross. I heard it said one way, and this is such a beautiful picture of forgiveness, that when it comes to being a Christian, forgiveness is like breathing in and breathing out. Right? So as a Christian, you are constantly breathing in God's forgiveness. Like, big inhale. Everybody inhale. And then as you forgive, you're exhaling that same forgiveness out on other people. Hopefully after you take a tic-tac. It's a big inhale, and it's a big exhale. You're inhaling God's forgiveness, you're exhaling forgiveness out on other people. And I would argue that forgiveness is almost as common as breathing. It happens almost as often as breathing. In fact, that's the way Jesus spoke about forgiveness. He spoke about it in a way that said it would be perpetual. Essentially, you would never have something not to forgive, and you would never have something to not be forgiven of. That in and out, breathing in and out, you're constantly being forgiven and you're constantly forgiving others. But a Christian who is unwilling to offer forgiveness is like someone who takes a deep breath and just holds it. I'll take in God's forgiveness. But I'm not willing to do the exhale and offer it to others. When we choose not to forgive, we choose to forget the cost of the cross. Joseph's posture towards his brothers is, who am I to put myself in the place of God by not forgiving you? You can see him go through this process with his brothers in verse 20. That he begins by saying, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. In other words, I am honest about the evil that was done, and then I remember the cost of redemption. And friends, I would say Jesus, Jesus could have said the same thing from the cross. In fact, he did. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. What you intended for evil, God is redeeming for everyone's good, for the saving of all who will trust and put their faith in him. This is the power of the cross, my friends. And this is how Joseph ultimately points us to Jesus. It's through the power of forgiveness. A number of years ago, um, I spent a year-long process meeting with a, a spiritual guide, a spiritual uh, mentor. And during this season, during this year-long thing, I mean, we dug up a lot of junk in my life. And uh, we dug up hurts and wounds and all kinds of stuff. I mean, processed through just all kinds of different things. And in this process, some scabs were opened. Um, even I was like reading through the pages of the journal I kept even a couple days ago, and like we went to some pretty pretty hard, rough places. And in this process, and if you've been in counseling, you know some of this, but in this process, you're digging up some of your childhood wounds and, you know, all of the stuff. And, and what inevitably happens when you go through a process like this is you're left with a lot of wrongs that you've committed, a lot of wrongs that have been done against you, and you're kind of like, what do I do with all of this junk? Like, how do I actually navigate through this? And at the end of this year-long process, 
and this took a while, it wasn't just one week of it, but at the end of this year-long process, he gave me an analogy that I'll never forget that has just stuck with me. He said that when we think about sin, think about it as all of these bags that you've picked up and you're carrying, and they are heavy. And you're picking up the bags of your own sin and you're carrying that, and you're picking up the bags of other people's sin against you and you're carrying those and you're trying to juggle the weight of the world and the sin of the world. He said, this is not what Jesus intended for us. That when we say forgiveness is the transfer of a debt onto another, it's not us simply picking up the bags of other people's sin and trying to carry those and trying to balance more. Some of us already have the weight of the world on our shoulders. We don't need any more weight of sin on our lives. But the graciousness of God, the graciousness of Jesus, is that he's standing there and he's saying, will you let me carry just one bag? Start there. You let me pick up the bag of the abuse. You let me pick up the bag of the betrayal. You let me carry that. You, you don't need to bear the weight of that. Let, let me carry it. And he's so gracious and he's so merciful with us. He understands that it takes time, that it's a process. That for so many of us, we've learned that weaponizing our wounds serves us so much better, but he is there gracious and he's there merciful, saying to you, my son, my daughter, you do not need to bear the weight of your sin. I already bore that on the cross. You do not need to bear the weight of other people's sins. I already bore that on the cross. That when we choose to forgive as Christians, as naturally as breathing in and breathing out, it's not that we're taking on other people's debt of their sin. It's that we're learning how to bring that to the cross of Jesus and allow him to do the work, him to do the heavy lifting, him to heal and redeem and restore that. And this is what he does. This is what forgiveness does, that I don't have to carry the weight of sin because I have one who desires to do that for me. When I choose not to forgive, I am choosing to forget the cost of the cross. So as we close our time together today, I want to invite the band up. And uh, we thought there would be no more fitting way to close than to do the one thing that Jesus explicitly said helps us remember the cost of the cross. The one thing that helps put our gaze and our attention and our affection on the cross. And that's the practice of communion. That Jesus' broken body and his shed blood is a picture of forgiveness for us. There is no greater betrayal and there is no greater forgiveness. And it's in this process of coming to this table where we are reminded that grace is all we stand on. That if it were not for his forgiveness for us, we would have nothing to offer, nothing to stand on. And here's what's so cool about communion. Communion is not just an individual thing. It is a communal thing. And so Paul says, before you come to this table to examine yourself, to look for areas in your life where you are holding on to unforgiveness, where you are holding on to bitterness, 
where maybe you have been honest with yourself about the betrayal that you've caused or the wrong that has been committed against you, communion is the perfect opportunity to examine all of this. That those who understand they have been forgiven much, forgive much. So what I want to do is I want to read this passage over us, this communion passage, and then we'll be invited as we worship to respond. And there's stations in the front, in the back. Um, We have one there and one there. Just make your way up as you feel led, as you feel called during this time. If you need to sit and pray for a few moments at your chair before you come up, examining yourself, working through some of this, please do that. But I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to somebody here this morning. I believe the Holy Spirit is placing someone's name on your heart this morning, someone's face in your mind. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, I love that honesty, I love that contrast. On the night he was betrayed, Paul is honest about the sin. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, the table of communion is open and we invite you to come as we worship together.